Um, thank you so much, Fabri, for inviting me and to all of you for turning up on what is a very beautiful day. There's lots of competition, uh, not only in terms of talks, but the desire to go outside is probably very high. Hopefully you'll get to enjoy the outdoors sunshine this afternoon. Uh, so my paper is part of an ongoing project on birthing technologies in 18th century France. So for those of you who are not necessarily familiar with historical sort of periodization, I always say it's the period following the, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, so post-plague, but pre-revolutionary, so before the French Revolution begins in 1789. Although my story actually carries over into the Napoleonic um, early 19th century period. So I'm looking at the different instruments and techniques, um, pictured here as part of a breast pump machine that I will talk about, uh, that were developed by medical practitioners, and this includes surgeons, physicians, and midwives, both male and female, and they were developed to address pre- and postpartum problems, as well as the process of birthing itself. So to give, give you an idea of what I'm working on, you can see here, I'll get my little laser, hopefully not pointing in, in your direction. Um, so I'm working on, for instance, um, birthing phantoms, as pictured here. This I found at the Medical Museum at the University in Grenoble. Um, this is a sort of phantom, it's actually a, sort of probably a 19th or 20th century phantom, but I'm working on more of the 18th century so-called phantoms. And these were simulative sort of models used to train midwives in how to sort of position the infant for optimal sort of birthing. Um. We also have here pel pelvimeters, part of the, sort of the science of the pelvic passageway, which developed also in the 18th century. This was mainly pioneered by surgeons wanting to sort of predict and prognosticate uh, predict the, the sort of girth of the pelvic passageway and then prognosticate um, or predict problems that might arise and the necessity of perhaps even a C-section operation, um, which was not really routinized in this period. Um, sort of gruesome. And these are, this is an example I found at the uh, Academy of Surgery in Paris uh, of a tire-tête, so a pull, pull head, or there's also a perce-crâne, which means to actually pierce into the sort of uh, skull, and these were used to quite violently in a way to, to remove infants who are trapped in the, in the pelvic or birthing passageway. Finally, uh, I look at the postpartum period, and this is where we sort of have birthing chairs or parturition chairs, so the, the happy birth finally happened, and we see, uh, and this is a part of a, a larger story than what I'm really talking about, but the movement really from the chair to the birthing bed, or the birthing stool, and you see these a lot in sort of medieval um, maybe not illuminations, but sort of wood carvings. You see women pictured giving birth, resting on stools, and you see the emergence of the sort of the bed, the lying down position. And you can even see in this Germanic model, it's from the Science Museum in London, you can see that the, there's sort of foot rests and sort of grips for the woman, and it eventually sort of coaxes women to sort of lie down and get into a sort of lying position. So these are the four technologies that will form four of the chapters of hopefully a future book. And the fifth one are these breast pumps. So I hope you'll see that my approach is quite interdisciplinary. It's historical in the main, but I draw on material culture and medical discourse. And I look forward to discussing um, some of these aspects with you. And I understand that some of you will have an anthropological background, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, one of the project's underlying themes really is the perception of the naturalness of motherhood. And the, the debate or discussion about what comprised nature in the 18th century is a broader philosophical, cultural debate. And we could perhaps talk about that. But what I'm trying to sort of seize on is the idea of the naturalness of motherhood. And in this case, the case of the breast pumps, the artificial interventions developed by medical practitioners to really rectify any sort of aberrations that they perceived within the natural order. 
So the natural limits of mothers caring as well as caring for and by extension feeding, breastfeeding their own young, was viewed in this period as an extension of the process of giving birth. And the process of giving birth was embraced likewise as a natural process. This paper really is concerned with what happened when women could not nurse. Um, and this is mainly for physiological reasons, possibly psychological, possibly both intertwined. Um, it's really the story of how medical technology stepped in to provide at least one solution to the so-called or apparent problem of infant feeding. And maybe in doing that, in sort of stepping in, um, technology or the rise of these sort of instruments, they facilitated the notion of natural motherhood. They sort of reinscribed this idea that it was natural and we're going to do anything we can with technical innovation to make, to make it possible. Um, and I want to sort of center my story on one particular breast pump. And I'll begin in that case with an anecdote of a scientific instrument maker. His name is um, Jacques, or his, his, his Italian name was Giacomo Bianchi. And he regularly welcomed visitors to the two instrument shops that he opened and he ran in Paris. And the sort of aristocratic quarter of Paris, this is part of the, I think it's the Tourneau map. I, I can't remember, Paris, 17, definitely the second half of the century. This is not his oops, collection uh, of scientific instruments, but it's a sort of collection of instruments that he would have had in his scientific instrument shop. Um, this is based on Bonnier, Joseph Bonnier de la Mausson, a sort of virtuoso collector, but based on the sort of catalog of instruments that I've seen, Bianchi had a sort of similar workshop to this. One of his visitors was named the, the Marquis or the Marquis de Bon, and if you know a bit of French, Bon means good, Marquis the good, he was a gentleman versed in physics. He knew a bit about physics, and he came to Bianchi's shop, and he wanted to chat with him about physical instruments. But Bianchi quickly learned, um, he was very good sort of uh, chat, socializer and chatter, he knew that, he realized that the Marcos was a new father. And the Marcos lamented at this sort of meeting with him that his wife's smooth passage into motherhood had been hampered by the sharp chest pains that she was experiencing. And this was on account of her glutted or overfull breasts, and she basically couldn't relieve it through infant feeding. Bianchi listened very carefully, um, with sympathy, and he disappeared for a moment into the back of his workshop. So behind the sort of shop front, he disappeared, and he returned, <coughs> what up, with the breast pump that he had made. Um, unfortunately, if you, you ask, if I, have I seen an extant model, surviving model, of Bianchi's breast pump? I haven't yet. Keep looking. I found another, uh, an English model, the later time period, slightly here. So I keep, uh, keep searching. Uh, and essentially, he offered, for a fee, of course, this ingenious machine to the Marquis as a solution to his wife's nursing woes. Knowing that the pump would basically siphon the festering milk in the breast duct into a receptacle and relieve her pain. And I'll show you some images of that breast pump shortly. The, the breast pump uh, that Bianchi offered, it was celebrated in the Marquis's household. It was, and it really soon piqued the interest of, court, of a court visitor. And this court visitor was a man midwife, or what you call in French an accoucheur, and he was the accoucheur to Queen Mary Antoinette. And she's probably most famous, or I should say infamous, for saying let them eat cake. Um, she might have said that, maybe not, um, but she did have an interest in breastfeeding her own um, children. And just to give you an idea, in this time period, it was very common to have a sort of court physician, a court midwife, a court this and that, the medical sort of all the sort of medical positions possible were covered at court, and they were the most trusted, obviously, of the royal family. So soon thereafter, sort of after passing this instrument along and it gaining attention, he uh, received the royal midwife at his workshop. And the royal midwife, a man, 
um, his name was Chef Toussaint de Vermont, he convinced Bianchi to submit this instrument to the, Royal, uh, the Paris Royal Academy of Surgery for its approbation. And this, when I do sort of present-day research in Paris, uh, I go down this street, I think it, I can't remember if it's um, Bonaparte Street, but um, it's on the left bank, and I go here to do my research, and here's an example of sort of a printed memoir or printed uh, minutes of the meetings that they had. So basically, the Academy assigned a two-man commission, two physicians, to test out the instru instrument's efficacy on a number of wet nurses. And so we know that wet nurses are surrogate feeders, so people that are basically hired to feed other women's children. And these wet nurses were registered with the bureau. There's a sort of bureau set up. Um, and it's not like today's experiments we do with sort of human subjects. None of these women signed off to have their um, breasts used and examined for these, uh, with these breast pumps. Uh, but I'm still trying to find out more about what was actually happening in terms of these experiments done on the wet nurses. Um, at, at any rate, the Academy gave its stamp of approval to the breast pump. It said it works. And not soon after, Bianchi was getting orders. People were ordering um, and were late to pay for his instrument. And it was that at that time, sort of at the, closer to the end of his life, that he issued a 10-page pamphlet. And here's the first page of the description, of uh, a pamphlet describing his instrument. Unfortunately, in, uh, sorry, to say 1985, 1785, he passed away. And his widow, Madame, or Madame Bianchi, um, she took over the commercial side of his legacy. So we can describe Bianchi as basically a mechanical tinker. Um, and figures like this do not normally um, appear in histories of infant feeding in the 18th century, or dare I suggest um, any other time period for that matter. And what I'm really trying to do with this project is to integrate the history of medical invention into in existing discussion of infant feeding, um, and to do it critically, and to examine how entrepreneurs like Bianchi conceptualize breastfeeding as a mechanical process um, to be rationalized, and where necessary, and he uses this sort of language to be corrected or corrigé through right implements. The emergence and subsequent uh, popularization of AIDS like the breast pump challenges the existing narrative, I think, of infant feeding, and that is because it has been largely, or at least primarily, framed as a debate over the natural order. And that is we must make room for the unusual suspects, so artisans and innovators like um, Bianchi, who offered an artificial mechanical solution to new mothers. And I think that the practical perspectives that we get from this um, is an interesting one, and it needs to be placed alongside the more intellectual or sort of high-minded discussions uh, sort of put forward by people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and some other sort of thinkers and intellectuals of the period who campaigned on basically moral and naturalistic grounds that to be a mother was to feed one's own, one's own children or a child. And I also hope that my approach draws at least some attention to women and to women's physiology and how these instrumental interventions, interventions rather, not just moral convention, provide really a testing ground for infant feeding. So we have this sort of female body that comes into the story. And I think finally, the technological medical dimension of infant feeding raises questions about intellectual property and medical commercialization because it engages with these sort of inventors turned entrepreneurs who guarded trade secrets and sold unique hardware in what was a competitive but rather unregulated marketplace. So I'll begin in sort of next portion of my talk by bringing to light one of the most vocal crusaders of maternal uh, breastfeeding, and her name was Madame Le Rebourg. She's not pictured here, this is another, another painting. 
Um, but she had witnessed the death of infants abandoned to wet nurses in Paris. And in response to this, she wrote the multi-edition manifesto, and it's sort of translated as advice to mothers wishing to nurse their infants. And it was first published in 1767, but it was reissued several times, and I'll refer back to that again. In this advice book, she presented <coughs> nursing as a natural and instinctual process that converted into a social virtue, if only because its practice had been eroded by popular convention. And she says, here's the spine of our lovely book here, she says, and I've translated it from the French, she says, the animal instinct that brings mothers to take care of their offspring is never a virtue in the state of nature, but to not estrange oneself from this instinct, despite all the circumstances which compete to stifle it in the state of society, that is one, a virtue. And so perhaps the broader context here is that uh, sort of moral philosophers and thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau in France and John Locke in an earlier period here in England are discussing broader, broader issues over the social contract, the relationship between society and nature, often depicted as very anti antipathetic. Uh, but the point is that she's making, she's, she's pointing out that there is a relationship between being virtuous, the state of nature, and that it's possible to be virtuous in a sort of social state as well. She also exhausted the list in her, in her treatise of the reasons why women might choose to not nurse their young. From the practical, and I sort of found it quite comical to come across spousal complaints. Um, husbands aggravated this essentially over the lack of sleep. Um, it didn't really occur to them that their wives might also be exhausted. I never found much sympathy from the uh, sort of fathers for their wives. Um, but also we see complaints lodged by mothers also uh, uh, concerning the physical pain and exhaustion that came with breastfeeding. So Lohogora is, she's willing to listen to these, but she maintains that nursing is ultimately the right and natural course for new mothers. And she sort of says, you know, deal with it and um, soldier on. She conceded, interestingly, that only two sort of categories of women were to be exempt from this duty, this duty of, of maternal feeding. And she says, it is those who are placed in the proximity of the ill or those engaged in domestic service. So they were apparently um, not expected to feed. Her invective was particularly persuasive because she had been an eyewitness to both the abuses of wet nurses and the success, in her mind, of maternal feeding. And her track was upheld as a quite accessible account of the natural, uh, moral, and medical grounds, really, those sort of three pillars um, for maternal breastfeeding. The discourse on maternal uh, nursing exemplified by advice to mothers reached a new high in printed literature during the last quarter of the 18th century. This is because its message to embrace breastfeeding was in line with the pro-natalist sentiment shared by intellectual, the, the philosophes, state officials, and physicians concerned over France's declining or apparent declining population. Um, and for background, there was a perception um, quite widely held by early economists or demographers that fr the French population was in decline in this period, and that was in compared to the German-speaking lands or territories and to Britain. And that this perception we've since sort of suggested was not necessarily reflective of reality or sort of actual numbers, which are hard to reconstruct, obviously, um, with limited sensei, and I'm not that familiar with the demographic history of it. But the basic idea was, well, if our population's in decline, we need to tackle the problem of infant mortality. And it was sort of suggested that the rates of infant mortality in this period were quite high, and that by shifting feeding practices, we might, we might be able to provide a solution. So maternal milk, uh, it was argued, nourished thriving people both physiologically and metaphorically. And in the process, the 
sort of apparently corrupted mercenary wet nurse milk could be undermined. I'm not sure. Yeah, here's an, uh, an image, or rather painting, I should say, by um, Pietro Zonghi of a wet nurse um, pictured. I'm not an art historian, but I do like to refer to imagery just to get an idea of sort of what we're working with. You can also see in terms of material culture, it's a bit sort of dark. You can see it's a quite aristocratic household, quite wealthy household. You could say a bit more about class, or class is sort of a misnomer in the 18th century, but ideas of proto or early ideas about class, we could talk about that. It should be said that the use of surrogate feeders was common in this period, not just for the upper classes, but also for middling sorts. And I think the only sort of social category who's exempt from engaging wet nurses were uh, the lower classes, and it simply wasn't financially accessible. There's two um, images pictured here. Uh, we have, sorry, it's not that clear, but this one is The Departure of the Wet Nurse. It's by Pierre Baptiste Creuse from 1780, pictured here. The idea is the wet nurse. Farewell to the wet nurse, there was an exhibition at it. I think it's an American uh, museum. If you ask me which one, I can't tell you at this moment, but I can look it up by Etienne Aubry. There's a whole sort of museum catalog about this collection. That was, you can see both from the same time period. So that's why I'm referring to the last quarter of the century. You can see that picture here. In the medical literature condemning surrogate feeders, the wet nurse is depicted as the inverse of the natural mother. She is capricious, she's avaricious, and worst of all, physiologically and psychologically corrupted by her poor and squalid urban environment. So there's a lot of concern that the women who were provisioning milk uh, as surrogate feeders uh, were basically living in the sort of worst parts of urban Paris, and they were just not fit um, to be feeding. Surrogate milk, by extension, is stale and of poor quality, indigestible, and capable of tr transmitting illness, bringing on death, in the worst case. Condemnations of the wetness run the gamut, really, of moral, medical, and naturalistic arguments, sometimes to the point of incredulity. And I came across uh, one example of this in a popular periodical. It was called the Gazette de Santé, or the Gazette of Health, I guess you could say. And in there, there was a discussion of the danger of the apparent presence of lead, of traces of lead on the nipples of wet nurses. And I thought that was interesting. And then the article goes on to say that we see lead on children's toys as well. And I was, not, I was surprised to find this because it's pre-Victorian. I, I always associate the use of lead sort of in the paint on China dolls with a Victorian thing on these Victorian dolls. They were the ones that contained these toxins. And I was surprised to find that, um, but perhaps we can chat about that. Um, so by the end of the 18th century, breastfeeding had been established in the, within the public imagination as a fashionable pr pursuit, an important feature of the so-called strength in numbers campaign that came to define reproduction politics before the onset of the French Revolution. Here's Marie Antoinette. She came back, her queen, to feed the royal infant, her daughter, pictured here. And the daughter looks sort of quite healthy and chubby and possibly glowing, although it's hard to see in the black and white picture. Um, in many ways, the breastfeeding campaign had been a success. However, there are reasons to believe that social attitudes to breastfeeding did not immediately translate into practice. Um, for one thing, the persistence of anti-wet nurse tracks in the, into the 1790s, as well as the re-edition, or the fifth edition, of Le Rebourg's Advice to Mothers, I think that provides evidence that wet nurses continued to trade in sickly milk in a way that was threatening to establish medical and civic ideas. Likewise, the presence in advice books of cautionary guidelines on how to select the ideal wet nurse, I think, admits of their use, um, albeit in only extreme cases. 
Finally, the foundation of uh, that Bureau of Wet Nurses that I mentioned, it was a municipal body in Paris. Um, this was established in order to help mothers place their infants with wet nurses. I think this also indicates that it was still a common practice and indeed business by the end of the period. And here, finally, sort of running the gamut of images, the arrival of the wet nurse, of wet nurses rather, and there's a bit of a sort of French caption below it. So alternatives to wet nursing. There are many reasons why wet nursing persisted as a viable option for new mothers across social strata. One of them was the difficulty, the physiological or psychological difficulty of nursing. Madame Le Rebour was not very sympathetic to women who said that they couldn't feed. She basically implied um, by refuting them that some patients experienced troubles in nursing their offspring. The notion that breastfeeding was uh, performance, however, requiring more tacit knowledge than instinct alone would dictate, was acknowledged by the entries on milk, or lait, and wet nurse, nourrice, in the period great um, encyclopédie. So you don't have to know anything about the 18th century um, to, to understand that this encyclopedia was the first great encyclopedia in the French language. And we have Diderot, you may have heard of him, and D'Alembert, which are here, and the frontispiece, or sorry, the front page, I should say, of one, uh, one of the volumes. It's a multi-volume multi encyclopedia. The difficulties that might be set a new mother included the under or overproduction of milk. Uh, There's also the problem of nipple deformity. And this is talked about a lot in the literature in this period. And I think the idea is that the deformity in many women's nipples is caused by overuse of corsets. So that's interesting. It's not a natural, it's a sort of artificial intervention, deforms women's nipples, and then we need to artificially fix it with a breast pump. There's also, I should point out, the question of disambiguating a problem with a woman's nipple or her breast ducts and the infant. There was some discussion of infants who were simply too lazy uh, or lacked the will to suction properly. And they didn't, the, the infants are sort of charged with the sort of burden of, okay, it's your fault, you're not um, suctioning properly. So this raises the question, really, what were the viable alternatives to wet nursing for new mothers? Some self-help advice books suggested milder interventions, such as coaching women or encouraging them to soldier on, just like pain. Uh, there was also the alternative of cows and goats and other animals' milk that was being newly explored in this period. So the, we come back to the Royal Society of Medicine in Paris because they hosted a, a prize contest in 1785 and in, in 1788. And they held these academic prize contests. Basically, the, the essay question was, uh, what can we do? Can we use alternative animals' milk as sort of suitable milk to feed, um, to, to feed young children? And the consideration of nutritionally suitable substitutes to mother's milk was in part possible, I think, because of the developments in food chemistry in this period. And that is mainly techniques available to analyze um, nutrients um, found in animal milks. And I'm just getting into this material, but it's sort of interesting sort of boiling milk and sort of doing different things chemically to the milk to see um, if the precipitate formed has certain things inside it. So there was some sort of chemical, early chemical analysis of the milks. Participants in this academic prize contest hosted by the Royal County Surgery um, were called on to compare the physiological and chemical properties of human and other animal milks. And most experiments on milk in this period were restricted really to cow's milk and goat's milk. Uh, and they were understood to hold advantages over poor wet nurse's milk. So the idea is that even other animals provide superior quality milk to the wet nurse, which I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. It was more of a caution by chemists that each variety of milk offered a unique combination of nutrients. So there was sort of discussion, broader discussion about sort of medical applicability of this milk. And this is not French, I'm sorry, but it's a Dutch painting by Jan van Gool, 
um, picturing sort of pastoral life, and I thought the cows, or I don't know if these cows are ox, or this is where I live near Midsummer Common in Cambridge, so I ought to know, and my mom's English, so I ought to know more about this, but you can correct me, which one's cow, ox, something, something. Um, sources of milk is all we need to know. And then also, this is a chemical laboratory, an 18th century chemical laboratory, William Lewis, um, an Englishman. Just to give you an idea of the different instruments uh, and places and spaces where these uh, experiments would have been conducted. By the end of the 18th century, investigators had successfully transformed milk into a research object, legitimizing the study of animal milk as a subdiscipline of chemistry. And the attention paid by experimenters to the physical properties of alternative milks did not entirely supersede existing medical theories. And one of these medical theories, oh, was sort of based out of Hippocratic medicine. And if any of you are studying medicine, you will end up, I think, in Britain as well, taking the Hippocratic oath before you begin to practice medicine. But the person behind that is Hippocrates, he's an ancient thinker, and he had all sorts of ideas about bodily humors or fluids and the balancing of humors. And he and some of his followers into the 18th century argued that animal milk was really unsuitable um, for, as a substitute for mother's milk because it dis, sort of unbalanced the humors. And here's a picture, Hippocratic medicine. The different humors included phlegm, uh, blood, and then black and yellow bile. Although we're having lunch soon, so we might not want to talk about that in any depth. Um, this was especially the case in the initial form. So you've probably heard the initial form of, of breast milk post-delivery is called colostrum. And Hippocratic medical thinkers in the 18th century continued to think that the colostrum was actually very damaging because they thought it was very much analogous to the blood in the womb of the mother. And so there's problems with the transfer. Other medical objections concerned the communicative power of milk. And the idea was that animal milk risked conveying beast-like behavior um, to the child. So the conflicting discourse on the usability of these alternative milks meant that physicians were very much intrigued by the possibilities, but they were not persuaded that any one milk, cow, goat, or otherwise, would really be the catch-all solution. So they were really prescribed as a last resort. So that turns us to sort of medical technology. For many women, the pressure to nurse their young and the limitations of advice books and alternative milks led them to have a sort of more desperate response um, from these sort of instrument tinkerers. Um, so we see breast pump emerge as part of a larger group of feeding repertoire. These are actually, unfortunately, early 19th century examples. I'm still having trouble tracking down extant models from the 18th century, but we see there's what we'd call banana boat, pap boat, and different nursing bottles. These are basically receptacles to hold milk. They're not machines to pump milk. These are sort of, sort of less interventionist, if you will. These devices assumed an important place in regimes of infant care. Um, but I want to turn our attention now to something that was more invasive, and that's to Bianchi's breast pump. So I mentioned before that he's, he's of Italian extraction. He actually works his way through the Viennese courts, the court in Vienna. He spends a lot of his life in the German-speaking lands, and then he kind of spends the last 20 years of his life in Paris. And all this time, he's working on experimental physics, instrument making. He also develops a blood pump before he develops a breast pump, and the blood pump was to sort of pump blood, and in this period, even leeches still might have been used to sort of clot blood or to draw blood. Um, there's a whole sort of history of that. Um, his big claim to fame really was actually a meteorological device called a barometer. He had a portable barometer that he advertised. Uh, and he was also known for bringing in skilled or training skilled craftspeople. He was almost something of an early mercantilist. He thought that 
all the different products you develop needed to be developed locally and that you don't want to import things from other European countries. So it's very much against the notion of the European Union now, nowadays. But he trained local craftspeople. He invested quite a bit of time in having these artisans help him build his devices. He died in 1785, but shortly before that, he had advertised um, at his shop a, a discovery. And one paper described it as, quote, a discovery as useful as it is ingenious, which is particularly addressed to the ladies. And the ladies are not normally invited or considered a part of his clients at his shop. And I think a big part of the inspiration for the breast pump comes from his interest in these in the blood pump and other what we call pneumatic or air-filled devices. So in this period, just to give you an idea of what was going on, the Perrier brothers, you've heard of Perrier, the water company, they were um, commissioned, that company, the brothers Perrier, to build a giant water pump for the city of Paris. So you have large-scale pumps and then these small-scale pumps being developed in different sort of industries and fields. Bianchi had also spent time in Castle in Germany, and he had come across a man midwife or Nakusha by the name of Stein, um, Gregor or George Wilhelm Stein, who developed the breast pump. So it wasn't that he invented the idea, but he came up with his own prototype that he brought back to Paris. And he marketed this machine, pictured here, and we'll talk about the different bits of it in a moment, to Parisians as a multi-purpose, lightweight, portable, and very easy-to-use instrument, and that it promised that an infant would receive adequate milk intake from its own mother. His pumps were sold as kits, can see here, uh, and it's comprised of different different pieces. So we see that there's the main pumping mechanism. It's basically a hollow glass cylinder. Uh, sometimes the cylinders were made of metal, but this one's glass, long glass, and then there's sort of metal on either end. Um, and the idea is that it would introduce air into the pump, and there's this little piston that would control the airflow. And then there's different glass receptacles, pictured here, figure one, figure two, and these were meant to be receptacles for the milk. There is also in this one, it's sort of an extra kit, and you had to pay more for this extra kit, by the way. It was always a commercial, commercial imperative. This kit actually, if you probably guessed just by looking at it, it resembles a breast, and this resembles a nipple, and that was exactly what it was meant to be. This was supposed to be, after you'd sort of siphon the milk out of the breast, you'd put it in this receptacle and you'd store it, and I'm not sure if they had ice with which to store it. I'm still trying to figure that out in terms of food history and domestic foodstuffs, but it seems to me that the food or the milk would have been put in here, the screw top put back on, and then this resembled a nipple so that the infant would feed from this as a sort of bottle. There was also this little wrench, basically, or a screw, and it was to use to tighten the valve. So this is a little bit of machinery that you could fix yourself. Um, so it was well-received. This pump was well-received by the medical community in Paris. It also received positive reviews in sort of broader sort of French, sort of in French provinces. And just to give you an indication of its geographical reach, in the northeastern city of Nancy, for example, the pump was celebrated for sparing mothers the pain of infants latching onto the, onto the nipple. It also promised to unlock flow and just really allow women to feed their own young. The main drawback of this breast pump, in the view of one medical expert in Paris, was the hefty price tag that prevented it from being useful, he says, to quote, to the class of citizens who have not the means to satisfy their basic needs. So it was in this context that the breast pump fashioned by another medical entrepreneur named Mr. Roland emerged as Bianchi's competitor. And his <coughs> pump cost a quarter of the price of Bianchi's kits, and it was accompanied even by a protective little tin plate case that came with it. It was also smaller and considered more portable and apparently, um, as some reviewers said, as functional as Bianchi's more luxurious pump. So in terms of his audience, 
So there are sort of the king's highways being developed in this period, but it's quite a ways from sort of metropolitan Paris to get to Avignon, where Roland was based. It's the southeastern Comte um, Venaissin Avignon. So he was based there. The Paris Academy of Surgery did hear about his invention, and they, they sort of tested it out, and they said it was as functional as Bianchi's more expensive pump. So this assessment really indicates that Roland's pump, as much as Bianchi's, was understood as intellectual property that was commercially marketable. His rival breast pump, Roland's breast pump, expanded the market, I think, to include rural and less well-to-do patrons who may have found Bianchi's harbor financially or geographically inaccessible. Bianchi's widow, meanwhile, in 1785, he passes away, but she continues, continues to sell his models in Paris into the Napoleonic or the post-revolutionary period. A competitive spirit also contributed, I think, to the rapid turnover of the machinery because apparently improved pumps were quickly emerging to supplant the old. And by 1809, this is not too, too long after, sort of 30 odd years after Bianchi dies, you have a <coughs> medical sort of tinker <coughs> surgeon by the name of Pierre Victor Coutinville, and he develops a breast pump. He basically takes the breast pump of Bianchi and he improves it. And he, I don't unfortunately have a, an image of his breast pump, but he also developed a pelvimeter, which I mentioned at the beginning is one of the other instruments I'm looking at. So he developed a pelvimeter, a breast pump, he did his thesis, you can see here, thesis on anatomico-surgical um, topics. So we can see that he came up with a breast pump and he basically replaces Bianchi's model. And one thing that he developed that was sort of quite ingenious is he wanted, Couture wanted to give the user greater control over the pump suctioning power because some women complained that the, the pump put too much pressure on their chest. And in his model, basically the, the user blows air through this little sort of siphoning pipe or more sort of malleable than that. And the, the user blows the air in and out so they control the, the, the pressure. So again, it can get a bit technical, but I think it's sort of, sort of interesting to show that there was this commercial competition. And to conclude, really, to come back to Bianchi and Roland, um, they were tinkers. They were, these are individual designs, but I think more generally we can make a, a larger statement about the, the breast pump and its utilitarian promise as a foundation for building a robust nation of families led by exemplary mothers. And feeding implements, I would argue, like the breast pump, we'll come back to it so we're not looking at a pelvimeter, um, came to symbolize an ideological commitment to maternal nursing that defined late Enlightenment reproduction politics. It also provided women who struggled to feed their young with an artificial way to follow the natural course, prescribed by medical crusaders, moralists, and intellectuals. These facets of technological development relied on a highly mechanistic view of reproductive anatomy, an idea that a woman's body was a machine subject to the laws of physics and whose faults could be corrected through instrumental manipulation. At the same time, there was an admission of emotional aspects of this machine, because the woman was not purely a non-communicative, non-responsive machine, because women responded to this machinery used on their own bodies. Um, so there's an interesting dynamic between emotions and uh, instrumentalizing women's bodies. I think in all of this, one of the unfortunate aspects is that the mother's viewpoint has often been overlooked, both in the pro-natalist discourse, the sort of larger, sort of higher-minded philosophical discourse about um, reproduction, and our, our ability really to reconstruct new mothers' experience, uh, experiences in feeding their newborns. And it's really challenged because the, the nature of the evidence is very fragmentary and it's very anecdotal. It's a big problem. But women were perhaps the biggest single stakeholders in the breastfeeding debate, and they were often absent from it, or they emerged quite categorically. So you have the sort of maligned wet nurses, 
Everyone seems to hate them, but they see, still seem to be suitable test subjects for Bianchi's machine. So we can, we can hate them, but then we need to use them at the Bureau, um, the wet nursing bureau. We also have, on the other hand, the sort of saintly, selfless natural mothers who come into the literature in texts like Le Rebouls. There are occasionally hints of literary protests voiced by women with experiences of the challenges of motherhood. And we have a fictional baroness, and she's depicted by the pedagogue, Madame de she's pictured here, in her educational treaties. And this treatise also was something of a hit in the last quarter of the century. It was Adele et Theodore, or Adele and Theodore, and it was a vehicle, and she uses sort of a little anecdote in her story, or her treatise, as a, a vehicle to question the widespread disdain for wet nurses. And the Baroness calls for a more sympathetic and practical approach to the task of breastfeeding, and one that recognizes the taxing realities of motherhood. And so as a conclusion, instead of me giving the conclusion, I think this woman will get the last word. She says, you appear to be much struck with all that Jean-Jacques Rousseau says on this subject. Among other things, he says, quote, she who suckles the child of another person instead of her own is a bad mother. How then can she be a good nurse? This observation of his has given you great reluctance to trust your own child or your child to the cares of an interested and mercenary woman. The mercenary woman is the wet nurse. But you do not consider this woman only deprives her infant of milk to ensure him his bread, or at least to provide him with those necessity, necessaries of which, without this sacrifice, he would stand in need. So far from being a bad mother, she was, on the contrary, showed herself to be possessed of real tenderness. Nature has undoubtedly convinced us of the pleasing obligations we are under to suckle our, own, or our children, and we ought not to dispense with it, but when we are obliged by still more essential duties. Thank you.